So guys, I'm not, I'm not trying to brag. What? I'm not. But I am a four-time survivor of parent-taught driver education. Four times. Yep. And it's still crazy to me that the state gives me that kind of authority and says that this is what your kids need is for you to teach them how to drive. Um, and all the checklists that they give that I don't fill out until like the day before they have to take the test. Like I don't even care. But like it's, it's a crazy thing. And so I, I promise I'm just stating the facts. That's just I'm not trying to brag. I'm not, I'm not even I don't even need an award. But I do like cookies and muffins and cornbread. So. The, the whole process is pretty crazy. If you've done it, you know. And if you haven't done it, we're with you in spirit. But you get to the end of that, and they go take a test, and they pass the test because basically you found out the word on the street where the easiest place for them to take the test is because that's who we want to put out there driving is the one that passed the easiest test out there. And then they come home, and they have a license, and they're ready to take their first voyage without you. And that's when it gets real. Like, oh, no, did I do enough? Did I, did I say enough things? Did I give them enough, enough instruction? Like, do they know how to turn the lights on and off? I mean, just that kind of stuff. And so they're about to walk out the door, and they're, they're getting in the car for their first trip without me or without a parent, without an adult in the car. It's going on a solo run on, on the real roads, right? And in that moment, you feel like, I got to give them a whole bunch more instruction. I got to make sure they know, like, hey, hey, put your phone, like, lock it up somewhere. No, just hand me your phone. No, never mind. You need the phone because I got to track you on Life360, every move. Like, all the things. Like, hey, make sure you use your blinker. Make sure you have enough blinker fluid. All the different things. Like, you're, you're trying to give them every bit of instruction. Look both ways. Like, don't, don't pull out. Give you yield all the things like you're just like did I tell them enough you're like hey if you come to a four-way stop just good luck because no one knows how to do those right so it's just crazy like all the instructions we got to give them we got to tell them all the things the writer of Hebrews is coming to the end of this letter and it kind of feels that way a little bit in eight verses he covered a lot of topics it's almost like he's like oh no I'm finishing this up I got to make sure they remember all the things give them all the instructions and so he just kind of throws a bunch of instructions out there now it'll feel a little bit like that it'll feel like wow it's just rapid fire just hey do this do this do this but I want you to remember the context. I want you to remember where we've been. He's been saying over and over and over again, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Nothing compares to him. Don't walk away from this. Don't stop following him. Keep trusting him. Get, hold fast to him because he's better. And his, the life he's called us to is better. And at the end, what he's doing is he's showing us what that life looks like. He's giving us the practical instruction. And it feels a little bit like rapid fire, but everything kind of fits in the context of, hey, if you really believe this, your life will be marked in a certain way. Your life will take on a certain characteristic, like the followers of Jesus should look like the followers of Jesus. And so that's really what he's saying. And if you look at it that way, I think you'll see even a pattern to it. It's not just a bunch of random things. There's a pattern to this. And the first thing that he seems to be saying here is like, verse 1, let brotherly love continue, is this idea that he wants us to remember to love one another. And so at the end of this letter, he's like, hey, Here's how this is supposed to play out. Here's, how, here's what this is supposed to look like in your lives. Love one another. Like, let your life be characterized by how you love one another. And as he says, let brotherly love continue, there's this, there's this picture right there of the gospel. Because he's reminding us that before Jesus, before you and I put our faith in Jesus, we, 
We were cut off from him. We were separated from God. We were alienated. And because of that, we were isolated. We, we didn't have a people to belong to. We were just kind of doing whatever we were doing. And we were without God and without hope in the world is what it says in Ephesians. But because of Jesus, because Jesus came and he took our place on the cross and he lived a perfect, sinless life and then he died taking the punishment that we should have had to take, taking our place on that cross, dying that death, because of what he did for us, when we place our faith and trust in him, he makes us right with God. He brings us into a right relationship with God. We couldn't do that on our own. We were cut off and separated with no way back. But because of Jesus, he brings us back and makes us right. We, we now have a relationship with God. That's why we talk about how you can have a relationship with God through Jesus because that's what he did. And that's awesome for you individually and for me individually to know that we've been made right with God. But the other thing that the Bible teaches is that we're brought into a family. We're brought into a community. And in that community, we're supposed to love one another. That it's not just you and God. It is you and the people of God that we are now brothers and sisters in Christ. Let brotherly love continue. How you treat each other in the body really matters. It's the mark of a Christ follower that uh, in light of who Jesus is and what all he's done, we are going to love one another. And this is a commandment you see in the Bible. In fact, the one another's play out in the New Testament like they're constantly a theme. There's, there's over, over 50, at least 50 different commandments in the New Testament on how we're supposed to treat one another. And the most popular one is love one another. They say that over and over. Jesus said it, the writers of the New Testament say it, like love one another, love one another, love one another. But there's all these other commandments that kind of, if you think about it, they fit under the heading of loving one another. Like they, if, if you're loving one another, it plays out in other ways. But that commandment after commandment to encourage one another, to bear with one another, to forgive one another, to honor one another, to greet and welcome one another, live in harmony one, with one another. Be at peace, comfort, serve one another, care for one another, speak truth to one another, stir up one another to good works, teach, admonish, instruct one another, just commandment after commandment after commandment of the one another's in Scripture because loving one another is how people will, will see that we're Christ followers. It's a mark of the Christian, how we love one another. And, and what that means for us is that what we do on Sundays when we gather in this place is really, really important. And we say that all the time, right? Like, us sitting together, worshiping together, us being in the room together, singing the songs of truth together, praying together, sitting under the teaching of God's word together. That's important because every single one of us needs that reminder every week of who we are and what God has done. But in light of who he is and what he's done, we can respond to him. We need those reminders. But the reality is that the one another's of scripture, this is maybe the most challenging place sometimes for those to play out. This is, this is a little bit, maybe not the easiest place for the one and others of scripture for us to work those out in community. And the reason is because, you know, when you're sitting in rows like this, and man, these are, these are some nice rows. Like these are, our setup team, they're good, y'all. And these are great rows. But when you're sitting in rows and you're looking at the back of somebody's head, it's kind of hard to love one another, encourage one another, support one another. These don't play out as well in that setting. Which is why every bit of importance we put on Sunday morning and the gathering together, we put the same amount of importance on community. Like across point, we want you in community. We want you in living rooms and in circles and across tables where you can look at each other and support one another and honor one another and encourage one another and teach and admonish. Like that's a huge deal. Like if you want to, to be a member here, it, it, it means being in community here. That's, that's a part of this thing because that is such a huge value. And it's how these things are the most easiest way for them to play out, for us to do these things for each other and one another is in the context of community. So that's just as important. And, and I'm not saying that 
how we um, interact on Sundays in this setting, is, it's impossible. Like there's, there's an element of loving one another every single Sunday. Every time we gather, there's a, there, there should be that guiding us. Like how can I serve? How can I help one another in this, in this room? In fact, in fact, love one another is like 9, 10, 11 times that's said in the New Testament. Four times in the New Testament it talks about greeting one another. Just, hey, greet one another. It, it, every time it says it, I, I think it's every time it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Don't go middle school on me, all right? So it's a cultural thing. A lot of cultures still today, they greet each other with a kiss on the cheek, you know? So it's, it's talking about the importance of greeting one another. And that, that's, that's part of how we love one another. It's when you see somebody that you don't know in this room and you go greet them and introduce yourself. It's a part of, hey, playing out the commandments of Scripture, letting our lives be marked by love. That's a, that's a part of what this looks like to greet one another, welcome one another. It's another command to welcome people, welcome people in. Be intentional about that. Look to the needs of others. When you're serving, you're, you're serving one another. Like this is, it's played out in every way, but in community is where you see it the clearest and where we want to see it the clearest. And what he's talking about here is this mark. How, how should our lives look? Well, they should be characterized by how we love one another, how we treat each other, how we forgive one another, how we, how we apologize to one another, how we encourage one another. Like whatever season of life you're in, whether you're in community group and, and somebody is misstepped or, or wronged you, like how you forgive them, how you bear with one another, how you do those things. It's, it's part of how we look as a Christian. If you're in the youth group, how you, how you lo- love one another and how you forgive one another and how you bear with one another in the youth group. Like whatever season it is, like we're called to take on this characteristic, which by the way is what Jesus said. John chapter 13 Verse 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Here's one of the places that he's commanding us to do that. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And that verse alone, like just that part of that verse, man, that's big. Because he says, hey, the way I loved you, that's what I want you to do for each other. Well, we know what Jesus did for us. He laid his life down for us. He put himself in our place on the cross. And he, he sacrificed himself. He put us first. So that's what he's saying. The way I love you is how you're going to love one another. That's what it ought to look like. And then he says this, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how we're supposed to show the world that we're Jesus followers, how we treat each other, how we love each other, how we bear with one another. That's, that, that's supposed to proclaim to the world that we follow a God of love by how we love one another in, in, in the context of our daily lives. It's, it's the mark, Jesus says, of a Christ follower that they love one another. It's not your bracelet, it's not your necklace with a cross on it. Those are cool, and nothing wrong with those. It's not your T-shirt that says that you're a Christian. It's how you love one another. Even if your T-shirt is one of those with the Coca-Cola symbol, but instead of Coca-Cola it says Jesus and says he's the real thing, even that is not the mark of a Christian. Like it's how we love one another. It's how we support one another that shows the world we're his followers. And so he says, remember to love one another. And then here's what he does. He gives two specific examples for how that can play out in the context for the Hebrews, uh, the the people he was writing to, and that that can play out for us as well. And the first one is to show hospitality to all. Look at verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares, which is, that's a really interesting verse, isn't it? Like, so I could pick up a hitchhiker and it could turn out to be an angel? Like, that would be wild, right? Like, and I'm, I'm not saying it's not, but what he's really doing is he's pointing us back to an example or two. In the book of Genesis, when Abraham had some guys stop by his tent and he welcomed them and he showed hospitality to them, it turns out they were angels and he didn't know. 
And his nephew Lot also had a similar thing where some guys came to his house and he didn't know and he just welcomed them in and treated them well and they turned out to be angels. And so he's saying, hey, that's happened before. It could happen again. But I don't think that's where we should get distracted in this verse because what he's talking about is hospitality. He's talking about seeing people for more than you think that they are. On the surface, we just kind of make these judgments. He's like, no, look past that and welcome people in. Show hospitality to people. That hospitality, how we treat other people, even strangers, is a mark of how we love one another. Now, when I say strangers, that obviously has baggage, right? Stranger danger and don't talk to strangers and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about people you don't know yet. I mean, on Sunday morning, people walk in that are strangers because you haven't met them yet. You don't know them yet. They're just here checking out Crosspoint or whatever. And we have an obligation as we follow Christ to welcome them. To, to show hospitality towards them, to meet somebody that you've never met and say, hey, we, we're, we usually go to lunch after church. Would you like to join us? Like to, to use whatever resources and means that you have to welcome people in that are strangers and get to know them because they might, they might end up being part of your family. That's what he seems to be saying here, strangers. There's a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's all about hospitality and the gospel by Rosaria Butterfield. Here's a quote from that book. She says, let God use your home, apartment, dorm room, front yard, community gymnasium, or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Because that is the point. Building the church and living like a family, the family of God. Hospitality is saying, I don't know these people. I'm going to get to know them and see what God does through that when I'm welcoming, I'm greeting, I'm opening my door, my house, going to lunch, like whatever it is, sharing a meal, that all of a sudden you see strangers turn into neighbors and neighbors turn into the family of God. And that's what we're called to do. That's how we express love. And I was thinking about this and I was thinking about examples. There's so many in our body, but I was thinking specifically about one that just is like playing out right now. Uh, Some of you know I lead a ministry called IGO Global Student Mission Organization. And every summer we have interns that come and serve with us in our office here. They help us train, they help us mobilize, help us put on all of our events in the summer. And these are college students that come and they don't, they're not from here. So they come in here and they usually need a place to stay. And so we put out a request like, hey, we need host homes for these interns, these college students that are coming, that are coming in. And every year we put those requests out and every year people fill those. And this summer, uh, the Bombardier family, Thomas is back there running sound for us today, and the Oliver family both welcomed in. Uh, one of our interns, one of the girls that served with us, they, the Bombardiers uh, took on Reagan and the Oliver family took on Avery and welcomed them into their home and hosted them for the whole summer. They lived with them for the whole summer. They didn't know them at all before that. These weren't like, oh, yeah, we know them. That's like, they were just trusting that I could pick a good intern. <laughs> it's a lot of faith. And when they showed up on their door the first day of their internship, they were like, hey, I think I'm supposed to live here for the next two months. Like that's, they were strangers. And these families welcomed them in. And they treated them like family. And they saw strangers turn into friends, turn into family. So much so that when I'm asking our interns, and we call all of our interns Jimmy just because we're weird and we feel like everybody needs a friend named Jimmy. So we call them all Jimmy. When I'm asking Jimmy last week, like, hey, how's host homes been? How's it going? And they're like, it's been awesome. Uh, Reagan, who's with the Bombardier family, like, she's like, I, I can't believe I have to leave. And I'm going to cry so hard when I have to leave because I love these people and they've been so awesome to me. I mean, that, that's, that's the picture of what he's talking about. Welcoming them in. They were strangers at the beginning of the summer. Now they're leaving as family. There's going to be lots of tears shed in that moment because of that. Because the, 
these families did that. They welcomed them in. And that's what it's supposed to look like. To show love in a practical way is to be hospitable. It doesn't have to look like that, but there's lots of different ways that we can jump off and figure out what that means to welcome and open up and use our resources and to, to be and show hospitality. And, and then after that, he gives another example, and he talks about people in prison and those who are mistreated. And so he's basically saying that love shows up as, as we care for the mistreated. If you look at verse 3, he says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. That's a pretty big calling there. And those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. So specifically in the context, he's talking about people that are in prison because of their faith in Jesus, because of persecution. He's saying, don't forget them, which is this whole thing. Like, don't, don't neglect, don't forget to show hospitality and, and remember the people in prison because they're in prison for their faith and they need help. So act like it was you and what would you want? How would you want people to care for you and care for them that way? And that's the context he's talking about. In our context, in our culture, we don't see a lot of that, right? We don't know, you probably don't know anybody personally that's in prison because of their faith. Persecuted churches, man, it's, it's, it's being persecuted all over the world. And maybe we need to educate ourselves and figure out what it looks like to really care for people in totally different contexts that we may never actually meet face-to-face that are suffering that kind of persecution. But in our culture, people are being mistreated. People are being marginalized. People are being dismissed. And as a body, as the people of God, we should care for people like that, care for people in need. Maybe it's not mistreated, but it's marginalized to they're, they're in a nursing home or they're, they're, they're in some kind of situation where they need help. And here's what he's saying. Like, look for the needs around you. Look for that. Like, people that follow Jesus are marked by love for others. They're welcoming in even of strangers, and they care for people in need. They care for people that are being mistreated. And lots of different ways for that to play out, but that seems to be what he's saying. The people of Jesus are marked by their love. And then he changes gears a little bit because he starts talking, and what it seems to be, he's talking about holiness. And I think that we can say this this way, remember to pursue holiness. And so here's, don't miss this. As the Jesus people, we're supposed to be marked by love. We're called to love. Like, love should be what we lead with. And at the very same time, we're called to holiness. And the word holy means set apart. So it, It basically is this biblical teaching that we're called to live by a different standard. We're called to live by a different code. We have a different set of values, and it's going to be against the culture. It's going to be going in the opposite direction a lot of times. It's going to be counterculture, how we're called to live, and we're called to live set apart, different. People should notice it, and not for our our glory or our fame, but for God's glory. Let your light shine before men so they'll see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Like, we live this way to show the world an alternative, to show we live by a different standard because of who Jesus is. And so we're called to love and we're called to be set apart in holiness. And there's got to be, we've got to figure out the balance. Sometimes we, we get it all mixed up one way or the other. But that, that's the, both the things that he's saying are the mark of the Christ follower. And what he does is he gives two examples to, under this remember to pursue holiness. And these examples are interesting. Because he takes two things that are, man, there's some topics. I mean, he takes one that's, he's talking about marriage. I mean, it's under attack in every culture. And it's definitely under attack today. And he's like, hey, hey you're called to live different here. And then he's going to talk about money and greed and contentment. And that's a temptation that's always in our culture, it seems like. It's just always in our face. And so he's going to talk about those two things. And the first thing he says is, hey, as you pursue holiness, here's what you need to do. Uphold and protect the institution of marriage. Look at what he says here in verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. 
Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And everything in that sentence right there is basically saying marriage is a big deal to God. And as God's people, it should be a big deal to us. So let all of God's people, married, single, whatever your situation is, let let you have a high view of marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all of us. Marriage, we know from Ephesians 5, is a picture of the gospel. How, how we conduct ourselves in marriage is supposed to show the world how much God loves us. And so we're giving a picture of the gospel in our marriages. And so marriage is it's, it's this huge, important value. God created it. It's his institution, institution. It's his idea. And so we should submit to his plan for it. Like we should hold it in high regard. And it's something that's under constant attack in our culture. Constant redefining and all kinds of different things related to that, especially with marriage and sex and gender, all these different kinds of things. And God's saying, no, no, it doesn't matter what the culture does. You're called to a different standard. You're called to hold this thing that I created in high regard and high honor. And so as a church, that's what we're called to do. We're supposed to say, hey, let's let's put marriage up there. Let's make sure marriage is a big deal. Let's make sure we're helping people with marriage because it's not easy, right? Like we want to support you in that. And let me just say this. The main way that that plays out in the context of Cross Point Community Church is like anything else. It happens in the context of community. When you're around a table and you're in a living room and you're looking at other people and you're saying, hey, how's this going and how can I help? And we're supporting and encouraging and teaching and admonishing and all the things. Like that's where it plays out. It's a constant thing in our lives of discipleship happening in the context of living rooms. That's huge. But marriage is such a big deal that we want to make sure we do everything we can. So we have a ministry at our church called Reengage. And Reengage is there to try to support marriages and help marriages in, in, in any way that we can. And every fall, we do a series of Reengage as our main like marriage ministry emphasis. And it's going to start really soon in August. And I, wanna, I want you to hear about it, but I want you to hear about it not just like me telling you as a preacher, hey, here's some things you need to check out. I want you to hear about it from people that lead it and are really, really super involved in it. So I invited the Jollikers, Kevin and Samantha, graciously volunteered uh, to uh, do this in all three services. And I just noticed you're sitting through all three services, so like you get a, like a crown in heaven or something. So give it up for Kevin and Samantha for doing this. So. Uh, these guys have been around for the, basically the whole history of our church. They're awesome leaders. They're awesome servants. Uh, Kevin's a deacon at our church and helps lead in a lot of different ways. Samantha's super involved. They lead in marriage ministry. They help marriages on a lot of different levels, but they specifically help with reengage because they love it and they believe in it a lot. And so, uh, Kevin, why don't you tell us uh, how reengage has impacted you guys personally? I think that would be great for people to hear. Okay. All right. First service, it wasn't live yet, but um, I think working through the curriculum of re-engage, one of the things um, for me personally helped me identify some of the baggage and my less desirable qualities that I brought into the marriage and how those things uh, affect the way that I communicate with Sam on a daily basis. Um, Together, I think through re-engage, we um, identified and realized the depth of our own brokenness and um, you know, through that, uh, we realized when we're communicating that we don't need to be reacting or responding out of that brokenness. Rather, we need to try to extend grace to each other on a daily basis because we're both broken, sinful people trying to walk this out through marriage. Um, and one of the other things, long, long-lasting benefits, um, we didn't realize at the time were the friendships that we had made through those first couple groups almost 10 years ago now are in our community 
They walk through life with us. Not only do they hold us accountable in our marriage, but then also sharpen us as we walk through and strive to follow Christ in our individual lives as well. Yeah, community is a huge part of Reengage, and you really get to know people. And like, like you're talking about, it's it's designed to help. It's designed to help you get better. Marriage is difficult. Marriage is a challenge, but we 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 can you know through Christ's help we can get better at it. And so it's designed for that. Samantha, like um, he said. It identified baggage and brokenness. That sounds awesome, right? Like, <laughs> sign me up for that. Um, so, like, how, how would you help us understand, like, who needs to consider this? Because I, I hear, well, this is for people in serious trouble. That's who probably ought to do it. But, like, what would you say? Um, I would say if you're married, it's for you. Um, no matter where you're at in your marriage, uh, there's a common misconception that, um, like you said, if you have to be in a really bad place in order to need re-engage, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, one of the benefits of this curriculum that it walks through, uh, you get to have conversations with your spouse that you would probably otherwise never have, um, which just leads to a deeper, richer, uh, fuller, more intimacy within your marriage. Um, and so no matter if you've been married for one day, if you've been married for 50 plus years, um, you can benefit from this. Um, and we always like to say that if you uh, re-engage is a safe place for you to um, reignite, reconnect, or even resurrect your marriage. Um, so. Yeah, that's awesome because some of you hear marriage ministry and you think, oh, that's the ambulance, right? We call 911. That, that's what, no, this is for everybody. It really is. It's, it, our marriages are supposed to honor God and be, be a picture of the gospel, and we can all get better at that. And so this is, this is for you guys. It starts August 16th. You can sign up by talking to the Jollikers. You can talk to Ryan. You can go to our website. Um, it's like a 15, 16 weeks, something like that program. And it's, yeah, we want to make sure you know about it. Kevin, Sam, thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. Give it up for them. So marked by holiness in our view of marriage. And guys, marriage is under attack. The enemy wants to destroy your marriage. No secrets there. Why? Because it's a picture of the gospel. It's that big of a deal. And so he's, he's after it. Um, and, and you may have heard all the crazy made-up stats like, well, marriages in the church, Christian marriages have the same divorce rate as you know, non-Christian marriages. And you know those stats are all skewed and they're, not, they're actually not correct. The one factor that is very clear in all the studies is that couples that are really engaged in their church, like I'm not talking about just showing up every now and then. I'm talking about they're engaged. They're in community. They're doing the things. They're serving. They're reading their Bible. Like the couples that do that, the divorce rate is super, super low. And so we want to see you walk that out. We want to be a church that supports you. Why? Because we want to uphold marriage and hold it in high regard and high honor. And so he says that's a mark of the Christ follower. And then he says something about money and being content. Remember to pursue holiness, so be content with what you have is kind of the instruction here. And he says it in verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me? And so, just so we're clear, a lot of people misquote this verse all the time. They'll say, well, you know, money's the root of all evil. I've even heard songs, right? But that's the lyric. Money's the root of all evil. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money's not evil. It's not wrong to save. It's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to have wealth. It's not, none of that's wrong. And what he says is the, the antidote for that. He's pointing us not towards not having money. He's pointing us towards contentment. And what it's doing is it's tying our contentment to our trust. And so what happens is that we have money and we have wealth and we have some savings account. And we start looking at that and we start somehow 
putting our trust in that and finding our security in that more than we find our trust and security in God. And that's when it becomes a problem. That's when it becomes a love of money because we need more and we need a bigger barn and we need more in our investment account. We need to store it up. We need to hoard more. We can't be generous because we need more because, hey, guess what? The economy might collapse. Recession might happen and everything you know, it might fall apart. We need more. And all of a sudden what we find is what we're not trusting God. And so what does he say? He says, hey, be content with what you have. And then he gives two other verses, one from Joshua and one from Psalms that have nothing to do with money because it's all about trust. He says, and Joshua, he quotes Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's a good verse. And people like wonder where it's at. It's in Joshua and it's in Hebrews. God's promise, never leave you, never forsake you. So you don't have to obsess about money and store it up and hoard it and find your safety and security in that because you can trust that God will never leave you, never forsake you, never turn his back on you. And then he says from the Psalms, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, nobody, what can man do to me? It's all about trust. And contentment is basically an expression of trust. I trust God that he's He's in control. It's okay. It's wise to save. It's wise to do all the things and spend our money wisely. All that's great. But where do we trust? Like, where do we find security? Where are we finding our safety? Is it in God? Because we know that he'll never leave us, never forsake us. He's our helper. He's our provider. Or is it in what we can save on our own, what we can do on our own? And so he's leading us away from that. He said, hey, in a culture that attacks marriage and redefines marriage and is throwing marriage under the bus all the time, Christians are supposed to be marked by a high view of what God says marriage is, and we're supposed to uphold that and honor that. In a culture that says get everything you can, get the biggest barn, and then when that's full, build a bigger barn and get all the toys and make sure you got all the security that you can have on your own, he says Christians are marked by trusting in God and not our finances, trusting, trusting in God and not relationships. It doesn't just have to be money sometimes that becomes that idol in our lives, that we trust in something more than God. So don't be marked, marked by holiness as we trust God. So that's two places, like love and holiness that marks the Christian. And then it seems like in this rapid fire, he gives a couple instructions for that. And the, the thing that he says here is that we need to remember to follow good examples. Look at verse 7. Remember your leaders... Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about leaders here because it's coming back up in a couple uh, more sermons. Our last sermon in Hebrews is really specifically about that. But what he's saying is in the context of community, you got leaders that are ahead of you. Look at their life. See how the outcome, see what they're doing and imitate their faith. He's not saying anybody's perfect. The Jollikers, man, their marriage, I mean, it's, it's what they do in their marriage ministry is great. Like, look to them. Don't think that they're perfect. Don't think they got it all together. But look to them and see the way their faith is playing out in their lives and try to imitate that. And so what he says here is imitate the faith of good leaders, which could be anybody just ahead of you. Just look at their faith and imitate it. Consider how they're living and try to do that yourself. And what that means on the other side, it's not specifically said here, but it just kind of goes with it, is that we should be an example for others. There's somebody behind you that's looking to you. And Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So somebody might be looking to you to see what it looks like to follow Jesus, and you need to recognize that. So you, I got somebody I'm looking to that's ahead of me, and I got somebody behind me that's looking to me, and I'm going to follow him. I'm going to trust him to do that. So remember to follow good examples. And the last thing he says in verse 8 um, Remember, Jesus never changes, and that kind of sums up this, and it, it's also going to transition into the next section for next week. But verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
which is that reminder that everything is always about him. It always comes back to Jesus. Everything that we're going to do that he's given us instruction to do is in light of what Jesus has done for us. We love because he loved us first, that he loved us and demonstrated that love, that he died for us when we were his enemies. And so we love in response to Jesus' love. He produces that love in us. Through the work of his spirit in us, he produces love in us. And so Jesus is the answer for that. And what he's saying is you can count on Jesus because he's the same. He never changes. And what that means is he's God, because you only say that about God, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Like, that's only God. And so Jesus is God, but it also means that the calling that he places on our life is the same. And what he's calling the people to do in the book of Hebrews is the same for you and for me, because it's the same God that we're following, and he doesn't ever change. And so the standards that he gives for marriage, doesn't matter what the culture does, this is the same. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever, so we trust him and we follow him. Doesn't matter what the world says about possessions or anything else. Doesn't matter what the culture says. If it's against this, we go, no, this is the standard, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we know that because he's alive. He conquered death and he conquered the grave. He's alive today. He intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father as the great high priest. He's better than all the other priests. Like, and he can help us with all these things. He will help us love one another and he will help us pursue, pursue holiness. And because he's the same yesterday and today and forever, we can trust him. We can trust him. He doesn't ever change. He won't, he won't switch the rules on you halfway through. You can trust him. He will never change. He doesn't change. And if you can trust him, then you can follow him. His power, his help, his work through you, but I trust him. I, I'll follow him. I'll let him shape me into the person that he's describing here. Let's be the people that he shapes that way. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth in your word. Rapid fired instruction, like it's, it's all so helpful, so profitable to us, and we're thankful for the time that we get to spend in it, to learn from it. God, we're, we're thankful ultimately for Jesus because of his love demonstrated on the cross that set us free so that we, we wouldn't have to just live for ourselves and whatever we can get out of this, but set us free to love others and to pursue the life that you called us to live. God, I'm thankful for people in this body that are great examples of that, that their desire is to follow you and to make much of you and to bring glory to you and love others, serve others, and pursue holiness. And I pray that you would help us all to be those kinds of examples for others, that we would be a, a light shining, uh, a spotlight on your greatness as we follow you in this world. And we thank you for that in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.